welcome to another Saturday stream. I am, of course, your host, Joe Magician, and today we're going to be talking about, well, something I've sort of talked about quite a lot in different videos and come up in different places, but never had a, a really dedicated discussion just about them. And that is, of course, the primary antagonist of A Song of Ice and Fire. The guys that show up in the prologue make Waymar eat shit and then disappear for forever. There's, of course, the others, the White Walkers of the Woods. Side note, this is one of my favorite things. If you look at mentions of the others in the books, and particularly in interviews, George used to call them both. He would call them the others or he would call them the White Walkers. The White Walkers of the Woods is a phrase repeated several times early on in the books, particularly um, by Bran. But then after the show came out, started to draw a distinction he's like no the white walkers are a show thing others are the book thing it's like all right man you called them both lovely clarinet bassoon music i got corrected again about what music about what instruments are actually in that song i'll have to ask the guy one day it's uh, a german composer i need to you're on an animator yeah i'm not doing that but anyway yeah the white walkers of the woods the main antagonists the hunters the she i think what they're called from uh, irish folklore Hoping you get that right. I usually say it wrong, but I, I'm trying this time. I am trying. Where did these creatures come from? Because there's really no answer in the books as far as directly answering that. Why are they back now? What are they after? What is their what is the point of what they're doing in the story? But those are, of course, very primary questions to a song of ice and fire. If you ever go back and look at interviews and people asking him Q&As and stuff like that. Whenever the topic gets around to that, George tends to clam up and say, you'll find out later. So obviously this is something that will be key to the end of A Song of Ice and Fire itself and not something that you're supposed to know. So something that is rife with a lot of red herrings, a lot of little different hints, and makes for fun speculation. That's kind of where we're going <clears> to <throat> go today with, with the topic of the others. There's more a lot of questions than there are answers. Every week on Reddit, somebody posts their, <laughs> their grand theory of how they figured out the others. There's a million YouTube videos about it obviously the show gave us one answer so if you go with that one it's it's a solved problem but you know generally george tends to add more detail from what he told dan and dave that's what we're gonna go with today we're gonna talk about all those different things maybe be a two-parter at some point there's a lot to talk about with the others um yeah <laughs> Yeah, old Nan called them the White Walkers, and so does Bran, and so does Samwell. I think the World of Ice and Fire says it too. There's different names for them. Um, I, I just found that particular thing funny reading them. I have a giant word document of that a fellow mod made up of all the different things George has said in interviews and QAs and stuff like that. And it's very noticeable at a certain point that he starts like delineating the two of them. Interesting. 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 Others just want to chill out. Wow. Certainly are chill. <laughs> Before we get going, just want to do a few uh, promo things. As per usual, if you enjoy the streams and the content I put, you can support me here with super chats and stuff like that. A few have come in already from Ramona Zamfir. She sent in 20 pounds earlier. Thank you, Ramona. Zamfir sent in $10. Thank you for entertaining me. You're very welcome. Actually, these last few streams have been basically just like, well, the, the Blackfire ones were literally just because Mallory asked for them. So that's why I did those. There was also Denny McKay. He sent in a PayPal. I don't think I have the PayPal in the description. If everybody wants it, I'll put it in the chat. The only difference is that YouTube takes a big cut out of Super Chats. PayPal takes a smaller one, but it doesn't take um, Yeah, Danny McKay sent in $5. Thank you so much, Danny. And morally, she sent in $50 saying, Hi, Joe. Wishing you and everyone in the chat a very happy, healthy, and safe new year. You are loved, loved, love, and hugs and blessings from more. Thank you so much, more. More as usual in the super chat champ. And where she goes. <laughs> uh, I also want to say thank you to a few new patrons that joined up since the last time I streamed. Um, Maesters, Paul H., Shale, El Pinto, and Ned Johnson. Although I think Ned Johnson's a, a re. Uh, 
a returning maester. I think he came back from his uh, journeys to a shy and all those things. But thank you guys. Appreciate it very much. <laughs> I took Jess B says, I took it as George just means his White Walkers aren't the same as the show. Yeah, I think it's a shorthand for trying to essentially say that his are different, which they are. The show version is um, much more ice zombie. And we'll get into the differences here. That's going to be a big part of the stream. Talk about the and how George describes them, what his influences are. And maybe we'll just have a brief discussion about why the show ended up changing them because George has commented on that too. Um, he was, yes, PayPal link is in the description. Oh, there we go. Took care of it. So if you want to uh, send him PayPal's uh, the links down there, go for it. Oh, thank you. Thank God. Wolfman Zach is here. He asked a unusual question on Twitter about uh, <laughs> for the stream in particular. Yeah, we'll, we'll get into that one. Also, Patreon, I have the ongoing Dying of the Light read through. Almost done with the book. I think we're on chapter 13 right now. I think there's only 15 or 16 chapters, relatively short. I actually haven't released the one, the current one yet, because it was such a impactful chapter, basically, that I've been struggling to put my thoughts into words. I was actually in the, in the patron slack talking with Maester Mary about it. And I was just like, I think I need time. I, I need to like process what just happened here. Other ones, I mean, it was, I had talked about a lot through those the Dying of the Light read through episodes that like there's a lot of setup and there's a lot of groundwork being put in for something and you can't really tell what it is. And one of those things just happened and it, it, it was a Martinian gut punch. Never didn't see it coming. Hurt emotionally in ways I didn't think I it would. It's a surprisingly heartfelt moment and something that's very hard for <laughs> I'm trying to like put into words and how to make an episode out of. So that'll be coming soon. But yeah, <laughs> we're gonna be doing that. So if yeah, at five dollar level on Patreon, you can get access to all of the features. Uh, Stable Girl from Girls Gone Canon, Bookshelf Stub, aka the host of Maester Monthly. We had a reunion show for one of these things. Maester Mary appeared. Um, Aziz from History of Westeros. I actually have to make sure that Lady install his time but she's supposed to come on for one of the episodes coming up yeah if you want to check those out but having a lot of fun with it and surprisingly a good book it's just you can tell it's george's first book is what i'll say about dying of the light but a good read and as usual you guys want to slam that mf and like button now, last time we did a bunch of giveaways for sure we're, we're just gonna do that again because i still have a bunch of codes to give away so let's make it at 150 likes oh i forgot the hat i'll i'll put on my hat 150 likes slam that like button but there's 52 right now on the on the stream you guys get that up to let's see here let's go by 25 so at 75 likes i will give away another shirt in my threadless shop or well it's technically a gift certificate but you can buy whatever you want but it's enough money to buy yourself a shirt so yeah slam the like button and then uh give away some more codes for you guys you guys can go ahead and grab some ass waffle gear or some magician stuff or spooky shirt, all that good stuff. We've always called Maester Monthly pseudo monthly. It is just definition of pseudo changes over time. <laughs> We've talked about doing another episode, but th this was kind of like that, um, mostly because I did all the work for it. That's generally what it comes down to. None of us really have time to make more podcasts than we already do. That's kind of where it goes. But yeah, thanks everyone for the um, super chats, the new patrons and all that. And everyone just showing up and having a good time this Saturday. We're going to have a good time today. Um, and I've got an opening quote here talking about, that's right, Kristen, Christina did buy a sweatshirt. That is the weird thing about Threadless. I can see what you buy. <laughs> the weirdest one was somebody bought a ass waffle shirt, but made it like bright yellow. I was like, I didn't think I was going to see that one ever. Checking these out. Yeah. <laughs> Some of, you, some of you guys have interesting tastes in what you want to, what color t-shirts and stuff like that you want. Oh, and if you do buy from the Threadless shop, hang on a sec. There's a, well, anyway, I'll, I'll talk about that later. There's a particular kind of shirt you should probably get that's way more comfortable than others. Mallory probably knows it. She's in the chat. Mallory, which kind of shirt should they be buying? 
one that's actually comfortable. Oh, that's right. And there's also a sale on Threadless, $15. But you might be able to get, if you win a thing today, you may be able to get yourself a shirt and something else. That'd be a good time. Try blend. That's it. See, I knew she would know. She's the Threadless Whisperer. She has helped infinitely with getting that thing up and running and all that stuff working. All right, let's get back to the others, the White Walkers of the Woods, the main antagonists of Song of Ice and Fire, the looming doom for all of Westeros, more so than really anything else. I chose a different opening quote because a lot of people tend to use Old Nan's description of them or they go for Waymar, but I wanted to use Samwell's encounter because that's one of the more underrated parts of a Song of Ice and Fire that, yeah... Samuel Tarly is the only one in the story that has ever has killed another. And it was almost by accident. How it happens and inscriptions are just fascinating. <laughs> so here we go. The lower branches of the great green sentinel shed their burden of snow with a soft, wet plop. Bren spun, thrusting out his torch. Who goes there? A horse's head emerged from the darkness. Sam felt a moment's relief until he saw the horse. Orfrost covered it like a sheen of frozen sweat, and a nest of black entrails dragged from its open belly. On its back was a rider pale as ice. Sam made a whimpery sound deep in his throat. He was so scared, he might have pissed himself all over again. But the cold was in him, a cold so savage that his bladder felt frozen solid. The other slid gracefully from the saddle to stand upon the snow. Sword slim it was and milky white. Its armor rippled and shifted as it moved, and its feast and its feet did not break the crust of the new fallen snow. Yeah, George is going real big on the horror there, isn't he? Um, really wants you to understand that they are supposed to be terrifying. We're going to talk a little bit about the descriptions of them as like the fairy folk or the she from Irish and Irish mythology, but he's, he's demonstrating here that at all points they are terrifying in human alien or like they are another form of life. They are something outside your understand. And that's the scariest thing about them. They do represent the unknown. Also necromancers, which is a good thing. They're not just ice demons. They're not just, you know, they're not just elves or anything like that. They've got a lot of a lot of combinations of different references and influences going on to make them as terrifying as they are. Um, oh, super chat here from Josh. Bar Thank you so much for $5. Rickon is armed with four dragon glass arrowheads from book one. It seems significant at the time. Now I think it's a huge Chekhov's gun thoughts. Boy, that assumes that Rickon's going to do something in the story. It's kind of unclear what he's going to do. The dragon glass daggers, the Night's Watch still have a bunch of them. Sam and I think John brought them back with them. Um, not really sure what's going to happen there. I mean, Rickon with Direwolf is named Shaggy Dog, which as many have pointed out, in literary terms, a shaggy dog story is a story that goes nowhere, um, that it's a, a faint, basically. Maybe George is being ironic with that, or maybe it's a nod to the fact that Rickon's not really going anywhere. Um, kind of unclear. There's not a lot of space for Rickon to come back and do anything at this point. With two books left, um, I doubt he'll get shot with an arrow and that'll be it. But I wouldn't put out a lot of hopes for Rickon being a big part of, a, of the story. <laughs> if anything, he's going to be a part of the uh, Grand Northern Conspiracy as Wyman Manderley's claim it for the throne of Winterfell, basically. It's not, that does, that's not really him doing anything. This is him being a part of the story, I guess. Yeah, I, I, I would be surprised if Rickon came back and had any kind of like big part of the story. He's on Skagos now. Davos is supposedly going to retrieve him, and that's kind of it. Last time we saw from him was from, I believe it was Ghost's Wolf Dreams, where he saw Shaggy Dog through Shaggy Dog's eyes killing and eating unicorn i think we'll see <laughs> he he is just he's too young to be a major character he's not gonna get a pov or anything like that so if he comes back he's gonna be used as a tool of the other characters in some way <laughs> rob made it john seat well 
Yeah, the thing about Wills is um, a little complicated. This is sort of a running theme of Song of Ice and Fire. There's another famous will that one character wrote indicating that somebody else will rule and how succession will go. And then Cersei Lannister took that will reds and said basically to Ned, enforce, and he couldn't. So wills don't mean a lot. It's usually armies decide who ends a second. We're getting, cl- so we're getting close to 75 likes. So keep slamming that like button. And at 75, we'll do a giveaway. I'll do a keyword this time. I did it wrong last time. Oh, freaking gets eaten by a dragon. Hey, maybe a lot of dragons, maybe some undead dragons to come. So when we talk about did learn hands have a whole episode on wills, I am sure they did. And I'm sure it was great. There's no, there's not really a legal system as we understand it. It's, it's much more loyalty than rule of law or who gets what basically. Kind of the primary problem between Renly and Stannis. Oh, there we go. All right. So let's, okay. 75 likes. So if you guys want to win a free t-shirt from my threadless shop, type the word unicorns into the chat. That will enter you for, to win yourself a free code. So while we'll let this run for like uh, a few minutes. <laughs> Entire chat is unicorns, as Rickon would love. Less pure Rickon. So one of the major, we're going to start here with inspirations. Where do the others come from? What is George writing from when he's making them? So the first one is very, very much Lord of the Rings. And there's two different sort of influences he's using here. First one is the elves themselves, the elven race, um, the inhuman, the inhuman beauty of the woods moniker. And there's a few other things that kind of get into it. But a big one, big reference and the big tell and not not I don't think that many people pick up on it because they don't know it's about the, the elves in Lord of the Rings. But it's the fact that the White Walkers and the elves share a very particular um, trait and that they walk on top of snow. They don't sink into it. They're like, they're very light or something like that. The quote here, it actually was in the opening quote. Sam noticed that when the other slid off his horse, it stood on top of the snow. It didn't, it didn't go into it. And there's another quote reinforcing that uh, that says, the white walkers go lightly on the snow. The ranger said, you'll find no prints to mark their passage. Yeah, they don't weigh anything, but they also have mass. It's complicated, but that's basically it. And then if you look at from Lord of the Rings, the quote is kind of hard to, to parse, but basically it means the same thing. Slowly they moved off and were soon toiling heavily. Places of the snow was breast high and often Boromir seemed to be swimming or, bor- or burrowing with great arms rather than walking. Legolas watched them for a while with a smile upon his lips. He turned to the others. The strongest must seek a way, you say. But I say, let the plowman plow and choose an otter for swimming and for running light over grass and leaf or over snow an elf. With that, he sprang forth nimbly, and then Frodo noticed, as if for the first time, though he had long known it, that the elf had no boots and wore only light shoes, as he always did, and his feet a little imprint on the snow. Farewell, he said to Gandalf, I go to find the sun. Then swift as a runner, over firm and over firm sand he shot away, and quickly overtaking the toiling men. With the wave of his hand, he passed them and sped into the distance and vanished round the rocky turn. So that's basically the same thing here, that George is making a reference for um, for his fellow Lord of the Lord of the Rings fans, that he's saying that there is a connection here between the elves and the White Walkers and the or the others, whichever one we end up talking. Uh, calling them during the uh, during this stream that it's a very basic thing but it's 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 a tell that allows you to essentially make this connection for yourself there are other things he does this other stuff all right if anyone didn't enter and wants to there's 26 people entered type the word unicorns and then we're going to do a drawing and i'll give that person a code and also i was uh, talking about the idea that they're often called the white walkers of the woods and as we see them in the prologue 
and in Sam's chapter, the idea that they sort of tend to come from the woods from nowhere, that they can blend in, that they that their home is the deep forest base. That is obviously very much a part of uh, Tolkien's all, where they have almost an inhuman ability to sneak up on characters. They basically cannot be seen or heard as they run through the woods. And for the most part, their homes and their cities are buried deep in the, in the woods and often impossible to find. The, the connection between elves and forests are a deeply ingrained part of their characterization. They don't, they're not necessarily light. They just freeze it to make more dense. That was another fun thing about reading, going back and reading a bunch of quotes about the others and the White Walkers. George's response to these things is very often a don't don't worry about trying to understand it. There's no point. It, it just happens because I want it to. It's fantasy. But yeah, that would make sense for like literally how they do it. Legolas have carried the rest of the fellowship over the pass. Good questions. Nobody really knows. Unclear why Tolkien did that. But George is doing obviously as a reference between them. Also, their inhuman beauty. We're used to the White Walkers of the show, which are frightening and look like old wrinkled men some sort of like frozen corpse kind of thing but the white walk but the white walkers of the books uh, essentially look like a bunch of legolas they have perfect beautiful features long flowing hair their armor is dazzling ice and basically characters that look at them are kind of intimidated by like these things look too perfect and that's more or less the reaction that many characters in lord of the rings have to the elves they're just like you really you are perfect how did this happen all right let's go ahead and roll see who gets it uh carolina blues there you go so congratulations if you just want to dm me on twitter or you can send a message through patreon or at my email ask magician at gmail.com and i'll send you back a code you can go pick up some threadless stuff um Links in the description of the, of the uh, stream if you want to go check it out yourself. Keep slamming that like button. Actually going to do another one and nine more likes. So so one important thing that to mention here is that this is not meant as a direct comparison. The others are not elves from Lord of the Rings, but George has kind of taken parts of them and integrated them. It's a, you kind of pull them apart, you can sort of see all the different way inspirations and how he mashed them all up into own creation. Obviously, the other characters from Lord of the Rings that are very similar to the others is the Nazgul, the ringwraiths as they're called, the servants of Sauron. Um, one thing that they definitely have in common is their uncertain origins. When you're talking about the Nazgul, I'm pretty sure you only know the names of a few of them, of the nine Nazgul as they exist, because they are so old and basically immortal that their identities have been lost to time. And it's not hard to see the comparison here between the White Walkers and the others, since they are seemingly immortal themselves. They appear to be magical beings serving something greater than themselves and the sort of their there's a strangeness to them that they that they share at the Nazgul and the way that when characters see them, the horror they experience is basically identical. Yeah, they're both based on the she from Irish folklore. We're going to get to that one after this. But yeah, that's definitely a big part of it. And this is sort of an underrated part of the the ring race themselves as, as well as Sauron. They have the ability to create what Tolkien called fell winters or long winters or long nights. When most people think of Sauron because of the volcano imagery and the great flaming eye, they think of him as a character of fire and blood and battle and all those things. But he's also a character of ice and he does have the ability to create giant ice storms and winters and extend them somehow. Various times throughout the history of Lord of the Rings, he would create these fell winters and he would send them ahead of his armies or essentially to weaken the forces of humanity and elves and dwarves and stuff like that 
intending for these incredibly long and harsh winters to kill a bunch of people or to wear them down so that his orcs and ring race could later essentially show up. The chief of the Nazgul, known as, God, am I forgetting his name? The Witch King of Angmar. That's actually a false name. He took up the name of a northern warlord posing as a wizard and nobody as like a, a warrior wizard, essentially. And um, he pretended to be what looks like a Stark of Winterfell. Yes, the, the northern king of Angmar, he made up and they invaded from the north using winter. And that was one of the ways that he disguised this attack that nobody knew he was a servant of Sauron because they were, people normally thought of Sauron and the, uh, the forces of evil, again, as a force of fire kind of came out of nowhere. Yes, the Witch King is special. He's very strange. There's actually a video in the future in my head about the comparisons between the Witch King and Rob Stark. That would be in, yeah, Kumul, the Easterling is another one could call the Amon, but the, a big part of them is that their history is shrouded in the past, that they may not even know their names anymore. It's been so long. And that's kind of a, a similar thing here. Oh, also, I forgot to mention this, that the, the Nazgul themselves prefer to move in darkness and that they really don't like being in light. That's why when they travel around, not only to disguise their identity, but they wear those big cloaks. And Sauron has a habit of sending like clouds ahead of them and storms, particularly the Battle of Pelennor fields he sent out giant clouds from from mordor in order to allow his forces to move in darkness which is what they prefer which is a similar thing to the to the white walkers of course the long night the idea that they can create cold in winter that's their preferred environment like those things are very very similar oh thank you carolina blues i'll make sure after the stream i'll hit you up with a code so you can go buy some stuff only one more like and we'll do another one the other thing that really draws them together that's very similar is the idea that the White Walkers and the Nazgul are not dead. They're not undead either. They're, they're something else. They've been stretched out to live basically forever, but they are not creatures returned from death. George has made that comparison several times when people say, well, oh, he, they're necromancers. Like, aren't they undead themselves? And he sort of waffles and says, no. And I think that's, that's kind of what he's referencing here. The idea of the Nazgul that their rings of power sustain them. But their lives have stretched out so long that they're they've like entered another stage of life. Oh, all right, let's let's do another one. We'll use the same one. We'll use the same same word. So if you have not entered, just type the word unicorns and you will be eligible to answer, eligible to win a code to my threadless shop. So there you go. Type unicorns into the chat. And there's obviously an, another strange connection between them, and that is sort of the idea that both of them share this invisibility that when we see them enter the story in the opening prologue, the White Walkers have the ability to blend into the forest and they have some kind of like camouflage armor, like uh, like Solid Snake or something like that from Metal Gear Solid 2. I forget the name of it, but you could put on like active camo or whatever that made you invisible. The White Walkers have that ability. They can hide themselves effectively basically whenever they want. And the Nazgul have sort of the same ability as a, as a, as a condition, as a side effect of their condition of their extended big long life thing that they have eff effectively faded from life. You cannot see them. Obviously they still wear armor and they have swords and sometimes they wear crowns. So you can see the things they wear, but they, if they took off everything, you would not be able to see them. And it's kind of a similar thing here invisibility between them let's see here just love my chat spamming unicorns <laughs> anybody coming in late isn't gonna know why i'm asking everybody to spam unicorns but there's a reason all right we'll give it so it's 249 at 251 i'll give it away we will roll any any stragglers type unicorns if you want to be entered to win a shirt for my third list shop 
And there's sort of another connection here that's that's less talked about, but it's definitely something of the Tolkien universe is that nobody there's not really the sense of the undead like whites like we see them in, in a song of ice and fire but there is the idea of lingering spirit they're sometimes called lingerers or they're called houseless they're essentially spirits of elves and other like magical creatures that stick around in the real world but um are not effectively undead it's a little complicated it's kind of like how Gandalf is not a human but he's a angel and he, but his appearance as an old man is not what he actually looks like. There's like second world where he exists in, and in that he looks like an angel. But in, in the um, physical reality, he looks like an old man. It's kind of like that. It doesn't make a lot of sense because this is a reference to what others in the chat have been talking about earlier to the uh, she or the fairy folk and stuff like that. But that's more or less what the um, Nazgul are. They are sort of like they have gone mostly to this other realm. And that seems to be something similar to what's going on with the White Walkers, that these ice bodies they have are kind of like an embodiment of something else, that there's a magical thing behind them that is creating these bodies. Like in particular, Sauron in Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit is called the Necromancer a few times. Not because he's actually calling things back from the dead or he's creating the undead uh, servants himself, but because he has the ability to commune with these spirits and they like him for some reason. But that's that's kind of, I think that's sort of the, I think this is why George struggles to explain them because it is hard to understand. Like what is the difference between a houseless or lingering spirit of somebody and a white and the actual undead? Hard to parse, mostly because they're help, but that makes it difficult. All right, so here we go. 151 or 251. Nikki Cha, uh, congratulations. Same thing as as the previous winner. Uh, if you want to send me a DM on Twitter or you want to send it through Patreon or if you want to email me ask, at askjoemagician at gmail.com, I will send you back a code and you will be able to pick up something from my shop. So next one at 125, remember 150, we're going full Gandalf mode. So keep slamming that like button. So there's a lot of Lord of the Rings in the in the, the White Walkers. The major inspiration this is actually something that comes up quite a bit when you talk about them. And that is the, the kind of the Gaelic concept of characters or mythical beings called she. It's actually spelled S-I-D-H-E. Um, people like myself who have seen that word in the past pronounce it Sidhi, but it's it's pronounced she basically. And the quote, the reason, I mean, people make the connections on their own just from reading the book, but there's a definite quote. And this is from one of the artists George was talking, who was trying to draw them. And they asked him like, what are these things supposed to look like? And in response, George said, the others are not dead. They are strange, beautiful, think, oh, the she made of ice, something like that, a different sort of life, inhuman, elegant, and dangerous. And th that's that's sort of what we're getting here, too. The she are also present in many other fantasy stories, especially those based around the British Isles. Lord of the Rings definitely is inspired by them. The, uh, the concept of the other world and sort of the elves themselves are drawn from them in particular. Uh, Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn literally has just a race called the She in, in it, um, the series by Tad Williams, which is a funny thing because every once in a while, some people accuse George of plagiarizing uh, Memory, Sorrow, Thorn, and Tad Williams for having another race that's very similar to the She in his story. And Tad always comes back and says, no, he's not plagiarizing me. We're both borrowing from the same thing. And what does he mean by that? Like, seems like the connections are pretty clear. It's because they're both drawing from Tolkien's example, who is drawing from the actual, the real life folklore and mythology. So no, they're not plagiarizing each other. All of them are borrowing heavily from this folklore. Pronunciation is in my strong suit. I took pains when I was uh, doing this to make sure I would pronounce it correctly. At least that one word. 
There's a whole other like, bunch of names for these things that I would get completely wrong if I pr- tried to pronounce it. But if you want to, if you want to know why it's pronounced that way, there's actually another. This is the thing that made a click in my head. There's a female version of the she, which are sort of like sometimes a little evil, can be evil. They're often portrayed that way, and you know them from traditional fantasy. Especially if you've played like uh, World of Warcraft or Warcraft 3, um, tons of different, even Total War, Warhammer, that kind of stuff. They all have characters by this name and you know it and it's called Banshee. A Banshee is a female version of a she, an evil version. Though if you wanted to actually like spell it out, it would be B-A-N apostrophe S-I-D-H-E, but it's pronounced Banshee. So that's that's how you can get it if you don't. The otherworldly folk. Yeah, sometimes Sithi is what they're called in Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn, but it's the same thing. It's a Sithi is how you would pronounce it phonetically, basically. I think that was Ad Williams's take on it. They all tried to make a take on it. It's never exactly them. It's always something different. So they're often called the fairy folk, the people of the mounds, the proud people, proud angels, the highborn, the noble. How they are portrayed in different folklore and different stories is very much down to how the story is being used. Yeah, I'm not going to pronounce that one, Christina. That's the one I, I looked at and I said, that's not happening. I'm not going to try and pronounce that. So they're like I said, they're a very popular folklore topic. They're very common inspirations for evil races or otherworldly races or things like fey realms or fairies like if you've read king Krill- king keller chronicles by at rothfuss he literally does have the other world of the fairies in there that's a big part of his story so it's very very common and popular fantasy to borrow from them liberally the, the story of these things. so basically what they have is they have they are otherworldly long-lasting magical beings that live in this like other world which is connected to ours at certain places and times of the year isn't ours but kind of looks like it there tend to be kind of weak points in the physical realm that we live in where the she can come through at certain times these tend to be like hawthorn trees they call them fairy nouns fairy circles you see like a ring of um, flowers in the ground there's particular times of the year when they can apparently come through this is the um, the origin of things like you know halloween and all those other kind of things these are all concepts borrowed from this or have to be have a been turned into other things over time the idea of a a spirit night when the reality breaks down between the real world and the other magical fairy realm as it were oh thank you for the uh, super sticker michael james three dollars this bump for you buddy so aaron in the chat and a few other people have noted that one of the main differences between the she and popular uh, culture and mythology and almost and uh, irish mythology is that the others are just evil. They are just evil undead necromancers seeking to wipe out the world. And that's not what the, the uh, folklore versions of them, depending on who's talking about them. And again, the stories being told that sometimes they are sort of like particularly good or angelic or other times they are just kind of presented as tricksters or maybe a little bit vengeful for slights done to them. And then other times they are just straight up evil. There are evil versions of them. But the, the overriding idea behind them is that they rarely do things without cause. They there's generally ways you can piss them off. Like if you intrude on their realm, like if you go into their trees or their mounds or something like that, or if you commit some kind of sin, the she will come and get you or something like that. You also, there's a practice that's still alive in some parts of the world where people leave out offerings for them. They'll make food for them and they'll leave it out. Honestly, not that far from the idea of leaving like um, milk and cookies out for Santa, kind of a similar idea. They required sacrifices, but knowing how ancient cultures used to go and religions 
probably sometimes they were sacrifices. That's sort of how it went. So they're they're not strictly evil, but they're not good either. They are capricious. They are changeable. What you do can have effect on them and they will react from their other world. And, you know, again, like the non-school, like the elves, like the others, they are long lived, basically live forever. They're sometimes like ethereal or spirits. They can do magical things if they feel like it. Your life, the basic idea behind them is that your life is at the whims of the she. So you have to act right so they don't come and get you. This is sort of like the idea of the old gods in Westeros where there's a set of things you have to do to make them happy or else bad things, but you can please them too. So it goes both ways. Yes, that's right, Jess. Everybody has folklore about elves and fairies who would take your children. You don't leave them food, a goat or bread or whatever. Yep. Very common belief. Um, that, But in particular, this version of them is one that influenced, you know, memory, Saron Thorne, Tolkien, and especially George R. R. Martin. He makes the, in that quote, he makes the, the connection literal. That that is what he's thinking about. Kept kept balances sort of generally depicted that humans were you you did not want to interact with them. And there's even like stories to the current times where people that are particularly superstitious will oppose like building of roads and buildings in particular places because in in their culture and in generational knowledge they know well that's that's a fairy mound or that's a place where they live. You don't want to pick up, piss off the sheep, like um, a very superstitious way. So it's not dead and gone, but it's far less impactful than it used to be, but still lingering aspects of an our real culture. So what George did, which is again, what Tolkien did and what Ad Williams did, is he made a take on them. And he took a decidedly full version of them, that White Walkers are the <laughs> super angry, out for blood, looking to kill people, looking to punish versions of the she in a sense. Like that's a major part of their inspiration. He talks about this a lot when he's when people ask him about like where'd you come up with these things? Like how are we supposed to understand them? It's more or less what he says. Like I thought of a bunch of different things I like and I morphed them into my own thing. Aaron says, I don't really think people think morally correct behavior kept the she away, more capricious, like don't walk. Yes. There there's different there's different stories and there's particular something I, I was going to talk about where there's like a version similar to them where they did act. They could act like sinner, like punishing sinners, like the spirits coming to and it. But it wasn't like, OK, so there's an idea in Christianity and quite a few other religions that if you do something wrong, God is going to come down and punish you for it. The she were much more toned down. They weren't watching all of your life. If you like if you committed a crime in your village, they weren't going to come to get you. There are particular things you could do to piss them off in particular like superstitions about things you should not do so th- there is a differentiation there they were not watching at all times they were not looking over all behavior but there were particular things that would um, get you on their radar and you didn't want to be on their radar but yes good point Aaron some of them would obviously just be straight superstition but some had some sort of moral connotations to it in particular the idea we're gonna talk about a little bit like um kind of like the wild hunt and things like that. I think a good example is probably a Midsummer's Night Dream, the play by Shakespeare. That is a rather accurate depiction of how in popular culture people understood the fair how fairies would interact with you know Oberon and Titania and Puck, how they messed with people. Even though that's set in Athens and not obviously England or Ireland. But that's more or less what we're getting at and relatively contemporary to the times when people believed in them a lot more. So um, it's summer's night dream. Always a good time. I would ride a giant ice spider. Oh, yeah. who would giant ice spiders sound fun. So that's that's one part of them. Let's talk about their first entrance in the story. So that's where George is coming from, what he's borrowing from, what his inspirations were. How did he use them? So they take their first entrance into the story in the prologue, obviously. 
I've talked about the prologue. We, we start with the three rangers who are going through the haunted forest looking for some raiders that have been spotted. They end up getting caught and Waymar Royce in particular ends up dueling the White Walkers in a very, well, maybe dueling may be a strong way of saying it. So here it is. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but here is Will seeing the White Walkers for the first time. This is their entrance into the story. George wanted us to know this at the start of A Song of Ice and Fire because it's important to understand them, their intentions, and what the hell they're doing. Book goes, Will saw movement from the corner of his eye. Pale shapes gliding through the wood, turned his head, glimpsed a white shadow in the darkness, then it was gone. Branches stirred gently in the wind, scratching at one another with wooden fingers. By the way, this is all very indicative of kind of like how people would understand elves even in Lord of the Rings and how the she would be portrayed that couldn't see them, but they were there. Will opened his mouth to call down a warning, but the words seemed to freeze in his throat. Perhaps he was wrong. Perhaps it had only been a bird reflection on the snow some trick of the moonlight what had he seen after all will where are you sir waymar called up can you see anything he was turning in a slow circle suddenly wary his sword in hand he must have felt them as will felt them there was nothing to see answer me why is it so cold it was cold shivering will clung more tightly to his perch his face pressed hard against the trunk of the sentinel and he could feel the sweet sticky sap sap on his cheek a shadow emerged from the dark of the wood it stood in front of royce tall it was and gaunt and hard as old bones with flesh pale as milk its armor seemed to change color as it moved, here as white as new-fallen snow, then black as shadow, everywhere dappled with the gray-green of the trees. Patterns ran like moonlight on water with every step it took. Will heard the breath go out of Sir Waymar a long hiss. Come no farther, the lordling warned. His voice cracked like a boy's. Threw his long sable cloak over his, over his shoulders to free his arms for battle. Took his sword in both hands. Wind had stopped. It was very cold. The other slid forward on silent feet. In its hand was a long sword like none Will had ever seen. No human metal had gone into the forging of that blade. Alive with moonlight, translucent, a shard of crystal. So thin it seemed to vanish when seen edge on. There was a faint blue shimmer to the thing, a ghost light that played around its edges. Somehow, Will knew it was sharper than any razor. So there's a few things to pull apart from this. What George wants you to know about them, what your with characterizations being put onto them. I mean, if you want to watch all my stuff about like what I think in particular about this scene, why they're doing Waymar, you can look up the Killing of the Ranger video. I'll probably put that in the description and it will be at the end of the stream. If you're watching this on replay. But we're seeing certain things about the White Walkers as they show up. They are wearing armor, so they wear clothes. They wear human clothes. Not only clothes, something to protect them. Wearing armor is a distinctly human thing to do. They also have swords. Weapons are common in near humans and fantasy races, but not all of them use both. Like when we see the Children of the Forest, they don't wear armor at all. They just use Sidians. So what you're being told here is that these are not just forces of nature, that these are near humans, basically. Um, that you're supposed to understand that even though they are inhuman, even though they are otherworldly, they decidedly have human characteristics. Again, this is kind of like the Nazgul, she, the elves, that kind of thing. Close, but not quite. There's connections between them. Um, they also have their weird icy camouflage armor, and they have their ice swords that dance with ghost light that are sharper than any edge, and as we see later in the prologue, can break swords. So it's not just that they're humans, but they're better than humans. Like every Night's Watch Ranger wants to be able to do what the others can do here, or they can appear and disappear into the woods at will. Their armor doesn't just protect them, it makes them invisible. Um, they have swords 
that don't get cold, that don't shatter, that can beat anything else. It's almost like you can think of them as a Night's Watch Rangers wet dream. This is what they would like to be like. This is the dream. Thank you guys for the compliments about Killing of the Ranger. It is it is a favorite of mine too. That is a good one. You know, they have long hair. They have beautiful features. So elves are definitely being referenced here. And that's sort of the relationship between the elves and Lord of the Rings and humans is that the elves are sort of like super better humans. They live forever. They have things that humans don't have. Many human characters use elven forged armor and blades because it's better than their own. It's supposed to create the idea that, again, it's it's similar. They're better than Waymar. They have things he would want. And there's a few other bits of characterization to pull apart from this. For instance, that they know what a duel is. When you look at what's happening, the one uh, White Walker walks up and stands there to essentially challenge Waymar to a duel, which Waymar accepts and the two of them start fighting. But it's important to realize that there are others behind it. There are more that are there. Let me see here. Let me grab this. They emerge silently from the shadows, twins to the first, three of them, four, five. Sir Waymar may have felt the cold that came with them, but he never saw them, never heard them. Will had to call out. It was his duty and his death if they did. He shivered, hugged the tree, and kept the silence. So not only is there the one that's fighting Waymar, but there's a whole bunch of them that also showed up and they're watching. They're not, this isn't a, you know, a pro, this isn't just like an animal attacking. This isn't a, a hunter taking its prey because it needs to eat or something like that. They understand that there's something going on here, some kind of ritual, some some sense of culture that um that you don't particularly get. Like if this was just a what am I what am I trying to draw on? If the others were just killing forces of nature, they wouldn't bother. They would just walk up, kill Waymar, and keep moving. But there's something else being done here that they understand that the others understand they should stand back. They, they should just watch and not take part. That's some that's important characterization about them. They they have a common idea of culture with humans, basically. And when two guys are are dueling, you stand back and watch. Yes, uh, that's a better way to put it. I just be says I love that the White Walkers still abide by honorable combat. Yes, they know what honor and combat are instead of just killing. They also laugh at the end of it after Waymar's sword breaks. Grab this quote. The other said something in a language that Will did not know. His voice was like the cracking of ice on a winter lake and they were and the words were mocking. So this is after his uh, he misses a parry and the other cuts him. The other essentially turns back and says something to the others essentially going like, "Hey, look at look take a look at this dumbass." Or, I mean, I have a different idea about exactly what's being said here, especially with the idea that they look at the sword and a whole bunch of stuff going on that parallels later. But, you know, again, this is a duel. It understands the culture behind it. And then there's obviously the descriptions that, you know, that they come from the woods. They have the ability to blend in with them perfectly. They're called the White Walkers of the Woods. So you can sort of say that the characterization between them and the Haunted Forest are basically one and the same. Everything George says about them compares to the other. You know, that they can blend in perfectly. They can move around the forest as if it is them that they are part of it, that they are almost like a personification of it. Uh, that stuff comes pretty clearly from the text. Important characterization for them. Again, this is the first impression. This is what George wants you to know about them. And then, of course, there's the next necromancy aspects that before the duel starts that the night's watch rangers were chasing a bunch of raiders who will says had died and frozen to death when they show up to investigate which is the trap for waymar basically they the bodies have gotten up and moved and ran away and actually at the end of the chapter itself after Waymar dies, he is raised from into undeath by the White Walkers and kills Will. Basically, Garrett's the only one that escapes. 
So you're not only, so they're given ice powers. They're given basically invisibility, basically being one with the forest and nature. That they are kind of a personification of nature, which again molds back into the idea of the she that um, they are much closer to the natural world than humans are, and then that they have the ability to command the undead. Um, they can create zombies. They're kind of like weird spiritual spirit like that something not from this world but from the other one other world and there's a lot of similarities here i talked about this a little bit earlier in response to it. there's a lot of similarities to what we're seeing here and the concept of the wild hunt um, those of you that know the witcher may recognize the concept of the wild hunt but this again like the she on depictions of it in, in popular culture from a real reality wild hunt is a consistent theme across northern and western europe it's the idea where it, it definitely changes from locality to locality and from tradition to tradition. But the basics behind it is that at certain times of the year or after certain triggers of human behavior, a whole bunch of spirits of the dead or the undead or sometimes gods and things like that will show up and rampage through the night and hunt some person or thing. Um, kind of like an army of spirits seen running through the forest. Sometimes fairies, again, sometimes the undead dogs are very common uh, and they are targeting someone or some, usually someone, somebody that has done something amiss. Like one example is if you hunt on a day where you're not supposed to, the hunters of the wild hunt will come and punish you. Oftentimes it is like, oh, hang on, do we just hit 125? I think I have to give away another shirt. But there's usually some offense and the wild hunt is largely shown to be a response to that, that there was some sort of sin commitment, whatever that is in particular. Changes wildly. Sometimes it's Odin leading it. Sometimes I think in like British or English culture, they're like King Arthur sometimes would lead the wild hunt. It changes quite a bit. But what's the important part here for what George is drawing on is the idea that these are hunters, that the others are. It's an inversion of what we're seeing from the, the rangers at first. It's that they're hunting the raiders and they're hunting in the White Walkers territory, the haunted forest. And so the hunters have become the hunted, that they are coming to essentially punish them for, uh, for trespassing on their lands and hunting where they're not supposed to, which sets up an inter interesting dichotomy between the, the rangers and the others themselves, that the others may have a feeling of territoriality of the land beyond the wall, that the haunted forest, the lands of always winter are theirs, and that the rangers keep going through it and messing with their plans is something they are not happy with and that they as kind of like an icy spirit wild hunts thing have showed up here to punish waymar and will and garrett for trespassing yeah that's right guilty undertaker ghost riders in the sky is the amazing american version of the wild hunt kind of a fascinating concept it's one of those things that appears to have several origins that like interweave with each other but very similar like <laughs> people if you're, if you're familiar with the concept of it, seeing the others show up in this way, going after Waymar is very similar to those traditions. So that's another bit of characterization for you. I don't believe the she themselves took part, but who knows? It's, it's a very scattered thing. Also took children and magical beings. Yeah, the targets would change wildly. There's a lot of different traditions. So I'm just, I'm just giving you a basic overview of the concept. There's a whole bunch of different details and uh, traditions to go into. Oh, yeah. By the way, we hit 125 likes. So type, uh, we're going to give away another shirt at my Threadless shop. So again, type the word unicorns if you haven't already. And uh, it's 322 right now. So at 325. I'll pick a winner and you guys will be able to get your own ass waffle gear. You too can be the proud owner of a light blue fuzzy ass waffle. You too can be that person. <clears throat>
I'm also not going to pretend to be an expert on the sh- on the she and uh, the different traditions here. There are definitely people that know way more about it than I do. The important part is the references being made and that you're supposed to connect them in this way. <laughs> so in the Killing of the Ranger video, I talk about how the, perhaps they're looking for John. There's particular aspects of Waymar that they look at before they duel him and that there's connections between him. But particularly, they look at his sword. He raises his sword and says, come, come da- um, dance with me then. And <laughs> before the other moves, it stops and essentially just eye checks it and looks at his sword and then decides it's okay to duel, which again gives us signs of their intelligence that they know that there are things that are dangerous to them. They know that there are things that could kill them that are out there. They are not mindless golems of ice. They are not just a force of nature they can think they can recognize and possibly they remember that hey uh, yeah Sidian can kill us perhaps Valyrian steel can maybe they're looking for a flaming sword that kind of thing <clears throat> but more signs of intelligence a sense of history to them the idea that they remember history is an important part for the others and then of course the drastic change from this duel with Waymar a second I'm gonna flip this baby around his duel with Sam that we talked about at the beginning that all of that is dropped all that behavior is gone the White Walker that shows up for Sam and Small Paul and Gren is not looking to duel them. It is not looking for, there's not a whole bunch of them waiting behind him. It just shows up and its intention is apparently to just kill them. Um, it's maybe looking for stragglers or it's looking for someone in particular. I've said in the past that everywhere the White Walkers have attacked has been where John has just been or attacking characters that look like him. So that's something to keep in mind. We also get the depiction of the White Walkers that don't walk on snow. George name uh, drops that detail quite prominently and then reinforces it later. And we also learn that they are killed by obsidian. So they are, they have weaknesses, but in, in, in a lot of ways, they're really no different like mentally mentally they're not much different from waymar or samuel tarley or john snow that inside their heads there is a human-like consciousness that understands culture and that has a sense of history outside's very different it's almost like a like a cyborg meeting a regular human and actually george got a question about that once <laughs> somebody said to him see here a question came to him what if we assume that white walkers are cybernetic organisms cyborgs like the terminator t-1000 Martin responds, well, you can suppose whatever you want, but I don't think so. So it's not incorrect to understand that these are maybe related to humans in some major way. All right, let's go ahead and pick a winner for more unicorn, more shirts from my shop. Matthew Mayer, congratulations. Make sure you send me a message on Twitter. You can DM me or you can send it through Patreon or you can send me an email at askjoemagician at gmail.com. Just say who you are and I will send you back a code so you can pick up something from my Threadless shop. So nice job, buddy. <clears throat> yes, they know. That's right, Joss. They know about Dragonglass. They probably know about Valyrian Steel. They may remember Lightbringer. They may probably remember how they were defeated last time. Important characterization. They are not just aspects of evil, basically. They have, between the ears, they're not that different from who they're hunting. There is, for sure, some amount of Lovecraft in the others, because there's Lovecraft everywhere in A Song of Ice. Oh, that's a cool story, JT Soul. Yeah, there's still places like that. People remember fairy mounds and wild hunt locations, all these other kind of things. It was a way of interacting with nature by spicing up your life a little bit. <laughs> so what we want to talk about next is sort of the myths and legends of the White Walkers, because that's what we know about them. Those are how they have showed up on the page. We're not really going to talk about the show too much. They get a lot more screen time in the show, especially towards season six, seven and eight, when they literally show up on the page. I mean, on the screen a lot more. It's basically just been these two times they have showed up. 
Although the implication from George, and this is important to remember, the idea that they can hide basically anywhere as long as they're not riding their their horses means that they can and probably are in a lot of chapters, but just not seen. Anywhere that there's a weird cold when somebody's walking through the haunted forest, a ranger talking about it, there's a sense that they could and may be anywhere beyond the wall. So it's kind of a fun thing to go back and read through, much in the same way that people look for depictions of mists and... Um, what is it? Wind through leaves for when the white, when the green seers and particular Brian is watching. Weird cold spots or eerie feelings from characters are probably indicating that the White Walkers are quite close. <clears throat> George gave an interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson about the White Walkers. Oh, I gotta watch that one then. So there's a few different versions that we of direct characterization we get from them. So there's Old Nan's version, uh, which is well. I'm just gonna go ahead and read parts of it. Kind of long to hear. <laughs> Oh, oh, my sweet summer child, old Nan said quietly. What do you know of fear? Fear is for the winter, my little lord, where the snow falls a hundred feet and the ice wind comes howling out of the north. Fear is for the long night when the sun hides its face for years at a time. Little children are born and live and die all in darkness while the dire wolves grow gaunt and hungry and the white walkers move through the woods. You mean the others, Bran said querulously. The others, old Nan agreed. Thousands and thousands of years ago, a winter fell that was cold and hard and endless beyond all memory of man. There came a night that lasted a generation. Kings shivered and died in their castles, even as the swine herds in their hovels. Women smothered their children rather than see them starve and cried, felt their tears freeze upon their cheeks. Her voice and her needles fell silent and glanced up at Bran, pale, flimsy eyes, and asked, No oh, child, this is the sort of story you like? Well, Bran said reluctantly. Yes, only old Nan nodded. In that darkness, the others came for the first time. She said as her needles went click, 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 spiders. <gasps> Licky ice spiders. Oh my god. They were cold things, dead things, that hated iron and fire and the touch of the sun. Every creature with hot blood in its veins. They swept over holdfasts in cities and kingdoms, held heroes and armies by the score, riding their pale dead horses and leading hosts of the slain. Wild hunt! All the swords of men could not stay their advance, and even maidens and suckling babes found no pity in them. They hunted maids through the frozen forests and fed their dead servants on the flesh of human children. Now these were the days before the Andals came and long before the women fled across the narrow sea from the cities of Roin. And the hundred kingdoms of those times were the kings of the first men who had taken these lands from the children of the forest. Yet here and there in the fat in the fastness of the woods, children still lived in their wooden cities and hollow hills. The faces in the trees kept watch. It was cold as death. It was cold and death filled the earth. Last year determined to seek out the children in the hopes that their ancient magic could win back what the armies of men had lost. He set out into the deadlands with a sword, a horse, and a dog, a dozen companions. For years he searched until he despaired ever finding the children of the forest in their secret cities. One by one his friends died and his horse and finally even his dog and his, and his sword froze so hard that the blade snapped when he tried to use it. And the others smelled the hot blood in him, came silent on his trail, stalking him with packs of pale white spiders, big as hounds. And of course he gets interrupted there. Um, so there's a few things to draw out of old man's story here that there's quite probably quite a bit that is embellished that particularly descriptions of their deeds and probably the length and severity of the long night if you read um Dying of the light like i have george has a similar story set up with the history of one of the planets in that story called high cavalar where there's a de description of humans being hunted from the, the planet and that they had to hide from the creatures and a whole bunch of mythological stuff happened um and then of course the payoff for that is that because it's a sci-fi world, one of the characters goes and reads the real histories from these surviving planets and realized 
that essentially the stories and legends that they knew were vastly dramatized versions of real events where the creatures that were hunting them weren't actually demons, but they were an actual like alien race that had used slave races to attack them. And that like, for instance, their gargoyles that adorn their holdfasts because they had descended into a medieval world after being wiped out, basically, were just what the slave races looked like when they were attacking, which I, I'm not I'm going to make a preface here. I'm not saying Song of Ice and Fire sci-fi. George very much has a, a tendency of having the real version in his brain of what happened in some historical thing in his stories and then the dramatic, exciting one that he has his characters tell. That's kind of what old Nan is doing. I don't think she claims to be telling the whole truth. But there are parts here that are definitely true. So, for instance, that the others come with a long night and they show up with cold and darkness. That's exactly what we see from Waymar's encounter, that they they have the ability to control the cold. They have undead servants that attack. They hunt, essentially, creatures that are have hot blood. That's, again, what we see happen. Although it's unclear if that's how they find people. That'd be kind of weird if they had, like, heat uh, seeking ideas inside of them that they fell heroes and armies by a score we saw that where they walked over a raiding party and rangers of the night's watch like they weren't there so there's a there's an advantage they had over humans um all the swords and men could not stay their advance again we saw that in the opening chapter that they have the ability to break iron steel when they attack them so true that's also true riding their pale dead horses in sam's chapter Yes, they do ride dead horses. They hunted maids through the frozen forest. Well, not probably maids too, but definitely frozen forest. That's their domain. That's where they attack from. Now, Storm's End is not a spaceship. A Song of Ice and Fire is not a sci-fi world that has fallen from high technology. It's origin likes writing about fallen societies. Sometimes they're sci-fi and sometimes... But anyway, the only part that's, that's really off the walls that seems like a gross exaggeration is probably the length of the long night, severity of the winter itself. But also the idea that what's what's the part I was going to how it ended is probably very much probably not how it went. And also the ice spiders. I dropped that's in the, the thumbnail of this video. It's actually in the title, too. What the fuck are ice spiders? Why we haven't seen these things? We've seen everything else. Why is George continually referencing ice spiders when they're conspicuously not in the story? We have seen them attack. We have seen their minions. No undead giant spiders. So what the hell's going on with this? Obviously, the Twitter account as the ice spiders Twitter account. I'm sure we'd love to know this answer, too. So <laughs> what's what's going on here? What's going on with ice spiders? But I think there's a few things that's going on here. For one thing, as... I talked about there's a large connection between in particular the forces of Sauron and Nazgul and the White Walkers themselves. And an underrated part of Sauron is that he actually had, and also Morgoth, is that they had sus alliances at certain points, or at least related to the giant spiders of that story. Um, there's the giant spy spider Ungoliant, Ungoliant, I think, which attacked the great trees. This is a really Lord of the Rings lore. But Morgoth used a giant spider to essentially try to steal the light of creation. Yeah, that, that's a thing that happened. And then there's also, of course, uh, Shalob that we've seen that you see in the main story is the giant spider itself. Giant spiders are a race from from Lord of the Rings, but not, like one that's almost gone. Basically, there's like a giant spider left when there used to be a lot more. Oh, thank you for the uh, super chat, Karina Strick for New Zealand dollars, perhaps. Anyway, I appreciate it. Thanks for the sticker. So the idea that George is putting these two things side by side makes a lot of sense. That, he, that that's one of the, the key parts of Tolkien lore, that the two evil sides are spiders and then like Sauron and Morgoth. Um, but Ungoliant, thank you.
I hoped I had gotten that one right. Yeah, there's giant spiders in Mirkwood, but they have they have largely uh, fallen off. Kind of like giants and all that other stuff in A Song of Ice and Fire. But George kind of answers this a little bit later in the a Song of Ice and Fire. What are the ice spiders? What are they talking about? And it actually comes from all places, a dream from Jon Snow. I've talked about this dream quite a lot in different ideas, but one line in particular is kind of fascinating. Actually, and this is a question that I got from Greyways Tim. One mystery is what exactly would, would be done with the sheep craster left for the White Walkers? They didn't have sons to sacrifice. If ice spiders are real, are a natural fauna of the far north rather than undead creatures, Maybe the sheep were used to feed them living creatures like they would need some kind of prey to eat. But Great Waste Tim is trying to essentially solve the idea of why did they accept the um, sheep from Craster. That, that's one idea. I, I, I have a different take on it, but hang on a second. Let me pull the quote. Because he mentions this a lot of times. Sam brings it up. The world of ice and fire brings it up. What Ice spiders. What the hell are they? So here's the quote. John's fever dream. says, they are all gone. They have abandoned me. Burning shafts hiss upwards, trailing tongues of fire. Scarecrow brothers tumbled down, black cloaks ablaze. Snow, an eagle cried, as foemen scuttled up the ice like spiders. John was armored in black ice, but his blade burned red in his fist. As the dead man reached the top of the wall, he sent them down to die again. He slew a gray beard and a beardless boy, a giant, a gaunt man with filed teeth, a girl with thick red hair. Too late, he recognized Egret, John as quick as she appeared. So George is essentially perhaps solving for us here why do they say that ice spiders are commanded by the others when they don't have any and this may just be john's imagination but it seems probable that he, the ice spiders are essentially the weird ways that the whites can move as they are being forced to by the others that the way that they crawl up the ice hand over hand without having to use gear or there's even like a, we'll remember the scene from world war z when they like made a giant um, pile and they climbed on top of each other to the top. I'm pretty sure that's what George is getting at here. That ice spiders are a fanciful way of describing how whites move when they're under the, um, the control of the others. I don't think there actually are. And if there are, they probably are long dead. Uh, but that doesn't mean, at least as far as we know now, who knows? Maybe in the winds of winter, we're going to see one. One of the others shows up riding a giant ice spider. Although I've had an idea for a while that it'd be kind of funny if, um, actually, maybe not funny, more terrifying. if. One of the others used a bunch of whites to hold themselves up like a like a an undead palanquin or something like that. That'd be kind of wild. The real ice spiders, the friends we made along the way. Yeah, perhaps that's my idea. Anyway, I think the ice spiders are just a dramatic way of describing the whites. They move and can do seemingly inhuman things, kind of like spiders. Otherwise, there's no real explanation for why they're in the story. Like, why are they keep being brought up? They're they're not showing up. They haven't showed up. And yet they're being brought up constantly. So the thing with the sheep is I think it has to do with blood sacrifice. I think we're, we're definitely going to have to do a two part of this stream. I, I do not have a, <laughs> I do not have enough time left to talk about all the things I want to. Maybe we'll save that one for later. Oh, I'm sorry. A super chat from no, 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 no. Five Canadian dollars, I think. Thank you so much. Maybe the others, the average Westerosi will be Danny's army of boogeymen, not the Grumpkins and ever see if she defeats the others too quickly. There definitely is an idea that the othering of enemies, that it's a common tactic to make people that are attacking you into monsters instead of other people or as the reason for you attacking them that, you know, 
they're not real people. They're like monstrous ones or they're fake ones or they're demons or something like that. That's a big part, again, of dying of the light, the idea of mock men. So very much so invading armies are often described in that way, especially if they are ones who had showed up once and are now gone. I, oh, I'm sorry, the, I didn't describe the ice spider thing very well. Imagine if there's like four whites with their limbs out and then just kind of crawling along like that and the and the other just staying on top of one because they probably could they can make it do whatever it wants that's kind of what i think is going on there no ice spiders i'm making that hot take they don't exist they're just fanciful descriptions of how the whites can attack and do attack like if they're climbing up walls of castles or they're like jumping off roofs and stuff like that that they look like they look like ice spiders because th- this is the only example in the books and in the show even because the, sh- the show didn't depict them something that could be ice spiders so, yeah zombie scuttling it's a it's a weird way of describing it so what are we gonna talk about here but there there is a problem with old nan's story getting back to this and that is the idea that in her description of the White Walkers, there is no motivation ascribed to them. She does not say why they were there. She doesn't say what they were after. It is just that they showed up, were awful, killed a lot of people, and then defeated somehow by the last year and the children. That's the basic plot of Old Nan's story. It's not a complete picture of them, and I don't think it's supposed to be. But there are, of course, you know, accurate parts of her story. And if you compare that maybe to the Maester version, you combine the two of them, you maybe get a little bit closer to understanding the truth behind them. So for instance, the Maester version, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically the Maesters discount that the others existed at all. They think it's a fanciful Northern tale of a fake enemy that never existed. They claim, the Maesters claim that they were just a wayward group of particularly savage Northern clans that uh, were particularly successful at uh, dominating and being extremely cruel to their enemies who happened to invade alongside a particularly brutal winter. That's the maester. They go on to say that it was not just conquests, but essentially they said that there was, it was like a revenge thing of sorts that they had a reason for why they were doing it. They weren't just, the idea was that people were moving into their territory. So this group, this tribe of ancient Hughes didn't take kindly to that. And so they just went on a rampage going south to punish people for pushing into their territory. That's the maester version. Now there's definitely inaccurate parts of that. Like for instance, discounting that the white walkers exist. We've literally seen them. So that part is wrong. The discounting of the fantasy stuff is untrue, but I'm, I would guess that actually the motivations there are probably not far because it, it, it they they agree in a weird way. Old Nan's story is missing motivation. Maester version is missing an accurate depiction of fantasy, but they're missing the parts the other the other version has. So it may be something close to that. There's also a bunch of a few other different stories that perhaps are about the creation of the others in different ways, or perhaps aspects of their creation. Uh, so, for instance, there's the Knights King, the story of well, the mythical figure who created the others, but sometimes didn't. Maybe he created them. It's a, it's a little bit unclear. We get the story actually from Bran retelling it from Old Nan, where she says, "Well, this, okay, so here's the quote: He had been the thirteenth man to lead the Knights Watch." She said, "A." warrior who knew no fear that was the fault in him she would add for all men must know fear a woman was his dawn downfall a woman glimpsed from atop the wall skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars accurately describing another fearing nothing he chased her and caught her and loved her though her ice was as cold was as cold as even though her skin was as cold as ice and when he gave her his seed his seed to her he gave his soul as well he brought her back to the night fort proclaimed for a queen and himself her king with strange sorceries, he bound his ba- his sworn brothers to his will. For 13 years, they had ruled Night's King and its corpse queen. Though finally, the Stark of Winterfell and Jormund of the Wildlings had joined, 
free the Night's Watch from from bondage. After his fall, after his fall, it was found he had been sacrificing to the others. All records of Night's King had been destroyed. His very name forgiven, uh, forbidden. Some say he was a Bolton. Old Nan would always end. Some say he was a Magnar out of Skagos. Some would say Umber, Flint, or Nori. Some would some would have you think he was a Woodfoot from them who ruled Bear Island before the Iron Men came. He never was. He was a Stark, brother of the man who brought him down. He always pinched Bran on the nose then. He would never forget it. He was Stark of Winterfell, and who can say? Mayhaps his name was Brandon. Mayhaps he slept in this very bed in this very room. So important thing about old Nan's take on the Night's King is that she's not claiming that he made the others. She's claiming that he came afterwards, that he was the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, that he was sacrificing to the others. Therefore, they already existed. An important detail, although as we know from George's um, use of myth and legend, is that there's often inaccuracies in them, that they morph over time in order to fit a particular understanding or sometimes even a moral lesson being taught to the people. Like for instance, uh, Sam talks about, we say that you're the 998th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, but the oldest, oldest list I found shows 674 commanders which suggests it was written during this is you're talking about the knight's king and john essentially just goes and says long ago it doesn't matter there's a lot you can get into with this but it, it unfortunately as written does not show the creation of the others it shows a human who allied themselves with them but that would make a lot of sense if you look at it from a kind of a meta perspective we're shown in the prologue that the others are very human that they have aspects and understand as we as i said in between the ears they seem to be very human so it would not be that strange if there was a person who found a way to ally with them course we know craster is the modern example of that character a human who found a commonality with the others and found a way to work with them sacrificed to them had his knight's queen or his knight's queen essentially and sacrificed to them sacrificed to what his sons so that seems to be kind of what's going on there as far as the northerners know they actually don't have any story of the night of the creation of the others they don't know where they came from. As far as they know, they just kind of showed up and started rampaging like a wild hunt, basically. They don't know why they were there. They don't know what they were after. Just that they killed a lot of people for some reason. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things about trying, if you're trying to construct the timeline of like, when was Night's King versus when did the others come and like other inaccuracies in history, which of course George put in there intentionally. It's supposed to essentially lead you down to the idea that none of them are true in a sense, that there's like there's something in between them, but the um not exactly all the same. The other story that people sometimes point to for the creation of the others is the 79 Sentinels. This is the story. I can let me scroll down and grab this one. If you've never, I'm sure you guys have heard it because you're my 79 deserters who went south to be outlaws. One was Lord Riswell's youngest son. So when they reached the Barrowlands, they sought shelter at his castle. Lord Riswell took them captive and returned them to the Night Fort. The Lord Commander had holes hewn in the top of the wall and he put the deserters in them and sealed them up alive in the ice. They have spears and horns. They all face north. 79 sentinels, they're called. They left their posts in life, so in death, their watch goes on forever. Years later, when old when Lord Rizzo was old and dying, he had himself carried to the night fort so he could stand the black and stand behind his son. He'd sent him back to the night's watch for honor's sake, loved him still, so he came to share his watch. So the part that tends to resonate with the creation of the others, because this doesn't sound like it's anything to the creation of the others, but it sort of is because the story is about uh, a human being sealed up in ice and um, essentially being watchers. And what are the others described when we see them for the first time? Well, they are human souls of some kind, or at least close to it, in some kind of weird icy body who are watching. So 
it kind of works out well. The idea that maybe that's a way for the reader to understand what kind of what they're like, you know, soul in ice. And this is a common theme from a lot of from George's other stories where he really likes the idea of crystals and gemstones can, being able to contain human salt. It happens all the time in the thousand worlds. In Dying of the Light, there's the description of whisper jewels, which are essentially like a copy of a person's soul at the time or their current state of mind. And when you touch it, you get to hear their thoughts and stuff like that. In Night Flyers, I mean, spoilers for that, but there's a actually, well, how can I say this? In Night Flyers and the story of the glass flower, they both share a common idea that in the far future, people end up being able to create uh, quantum computers basically out of crystals. And from that, human souls and psychic beings can imprint themselves. And that tends to be one of the ways that George likes to imagine people existing beyond death that they have that particularly psychic characters have the ability to project themselves into like crystal and gemstones and shit like that it's weird how often it comes up but that's one of the reasons i don't think the, the depiction of the night king having city and peace in his chest and old hands or benjamin as well is that far off because that is a george idea he writes about that a lot so um i wouldn't be surprised that that were true but yeah whisper jewels are a really interesting idea and the 79 sentinels are sort of a graphic depiction of what they're like a person trapped in a giant crystal an ice crystal in this case but that's that's one that can sort of tell you it. Uh, uh, the story of arson ice axe is kind of similar where it's a guy who tried to use a pickaxe burrow through the wall to get to the other side from the wildling side. He got caught and got sealed up inside. So it's another story of a person being encased in ice, although less 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 descriptive of the Night's Watch Rangers, basically. It's just Melisandre's red jewels, anything like that. Yeah, it's similar in the idea magic and psychics can use jewels somehow in George's mind. It's one of his favorites. Hive-minded things and jewels being used for magic and fantasy shit are his jam, almost always. That's why the glamour that at Mance wears to look like Rattle Shirt and also the glamour that Bloodraven wears in the Mystery Knight is a, uh, a giant moonstone that allows him to look like Maynard Plum. That's that's why he loves that idea. Oh, a super chat from a sea star. Five dollars. Thank you so much. A soul sealed in ice makes me think of a blue rose growing from a chink in a wall of ice. You think Liana was buried in the wall somehow? No, she her bones were brought back by Ned and sealed into the crypts. But I think that's an excellent uh, observation that a soul in ice is very, very similar to that idea. Yeah. John also thinks that several times when he's looking at the wall that he thinks it's alive, that he wonders, he looks at the light dancing through it and the way that, you know, it has frost teas and it grows and contracts. It's making the point that it's like kind of alive and that's it's similar in that way to the others. Two pounds from Archive. Question was too long for Super Chat. Did you put one and I missed it? I'm guessing it's going to show up in a little bit. Anything special about 79 or 80? I don't think so. George isn't big onto numerology in that way. It may be just like it had a nice sound to it. 79. Uh, 79 Sentinels. Kind of like using uh, kind of like how Stan Lee used to do where all his characters have the same first letter. Peter Parker. That kind of thing. Happens a lot. It's, it's a very common thing in old Marvel comics. That characters first and last names have the same letter and make them have this particular sound to them actually that kind of thing is uh fam is famous one of the most famous numbers in fiction is obviously the number 42 from uh, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and when people asked why that number was chosen the author said it was a funny sounding number and that's why he used it um that weeps it protects itself yeah it seems alive that's gonna be another video so the truth of those myths and legends kind of make the case for us that we're supposed to understand that they are somehow magical, perhaps dead, undead humans that have found a way to exist in like ice crystals or something like that. 
Obsidian would also make sense, although I don't think we saw any when and melted that once. Maybe not. Maybe that's a show only thing. But alliteration. Yeah, I couldn't remember the word alliteration, so I just described what it was. That's the fun part of streaming. You have to try and move on when you can't remember something. Dead Johns can be encased in ice in the wall to preserve his body while he's ghosting about. That's definitely an idea that a brand sees him doing that way, that his body's going to be preserved in the ice cells. 79 Sentinels is probably also a yeah foreshadowing for John. Yeah, it rolls off the tongue. It has a it has a rhythm to it. So if there's a particular number and meaning to it, I don't know it. Um, numerology is one of those weird things that people tend to go nuts for that. Unless it's like really on the nose, I, it, it tends to just roll off me. I'm not aware of George doing that in particular other places, but you never know. Sometimes he does. Ah, And so the other part to talk about is kind of their creation a little bit. Actually, we've been going for about two hours now. You guys, we can, I, I, I think we'll make this a second stream. I think we'll come back and do one particularly about the creation of the others and the relationship to the children, what their motivations are, that kind of thing, because I have a lot more to say, but I don't have a lot of, I don't have a lot more time. So I'm going to take some of the questions I got on Twitter and anything you guys said in the chat that I totally missed. Oh, we just hit hundred just in time. There we go. Wizard hat. <laughs> yeah, we'll do the Q&A section here and then we'll come back to the creation of the others and like what do they want in a part two that you said and I missed while I was monologuing like a supervillain. Go ahead. Also, uh, let's do another giveaway. So at 100, we're at 150 likes. So again, everyone in the chat, if you want to be, if you've already said it, you don't have to do it again, but type the word unicorns to be entered to win a free shirt from my threadless shop. Unicorns for Rickon. So let's go through some of these questions. I'll watch that interview too before I, before the next one which will probably be in another two weeks. Yeah, 1,713, yeah. There's particular, people really like prime numbers for, for number meaning. Sometimes they just sound impressive. They don't usually mean. So oh, I wanted to actually answer Grey Waste Tim's question. So what are the sheep for? It's kind of a question for what, is, what are they doing with Craster's sons? That'll be another thing we'll talk about in the next one. We'll talk more about Craster's sons and that'll, that'll have a lot to do with their creation. They're kind of linked topics. That's why I wasn't saying it right there. But I'm pretty sure that George has said several times in the books that all magic is based around blood sacrifice. So it may be that sheep can kind of stand in and in some way because they are still alive. You know, maybe there's some value to killing them and sacrificing them for like something that the others need or to sustain themselves. But human children are better. So I would guess that they were essentially like a stopgap, that they showed up asking for their uh, sacrifice from Raster. Again, much like the idea of the she where they people would would give them sacrifices of real food and other stuff, sometimes goats and stuff like that in order to appease them. I'm guessing that's what it's getting at, that it was essentially like, sorry, I don't have a baby for you right now, but here's a sheep instead. Unicorns. There you go. Type in the unicorns. Let's see here. Hairless Koi, they asked, if there's something that people Westeros can give the others to appease them. Is there a diplomatic or trade solution? Well, there's something they can give them, which they're not, which is babies. Craster's apparently the only one that we know of doing. The Night's King legend says that part of his the thing he did wrong is that he was giving children to the others or he was sacrificing to them. Knowing Craster's example, it probably was kids um, that they may have been having like children with. Like we know the Night's Watch often gets given orphans or unwanted children to raise. That's the story. Or they find them out beyond the wall. But perhaps that's what the Night King was doing. They had been accepting bastard children and unwanted kids and orphans. And then he was just handing them over to the others, which apparently you're not supposed to do. Six sheep people, one human. Yeah, let's ask uh, Edward Elric about that one. What, what is the exact equivalent exchange on that? All right, let's go ahead and roll for another shirt. Natasha F, if you're still in the chat, go ahead and, and you can send me a message on Twitter. You can DM me. 
send it through Patreon, or you can email me at askjoemagician at gmail.com, and I will give you a free code so you can go buy something from my Threadless shop. Congratulations. Hope you're still around. There is the idea that like the prince that was promised is a prince that was promised to them. I mean, I want to, there's spoilers for, well, I'm not, I'm not going to say it because even mentioning it is a big spoiler. But that is an idea that exists in other stories um, without naming which ones I mean. So there definitely is that idea. And maybe they feel owed a particular person or a particular prince or something like that. That could be it. It doesn't it doesn't really s- seem like there's a particular thing that they could give back. I've theorized in the past that maybe they have captured the Knight's Queen. That'd be a fun one. Like there's a particular weirdness to the Winterfell. I've always liked the idea that the Night's Queen is like trapped at the bottom of the pool or at the base of the uh, the crypts or something like that because the weirwood is right on top of it and there's like a heat vent. I, I don't know. It was more fan fiction-y than anything, but it's like a fun idea that maybe the Night's Queen is still alive and they want her back. That'd be kind of fun because they can't reproduce. They can't have children apparently. So maybe it's because they don't have her anymore. Craster's <laughs> the worst Isaac and Ismail story. Yeah, that's kind of true. Yeah. It's like, what if you went through it? Good time to remind people about your video that talks about the Night's Watch vows. Which one's that? I have a video talking about the Night's Watch vows? That's a stream? I don't remember that one. Uh, oh, thanks, Aaron. I, I think it's a fun idea, but it's, I think it's definitely fan fiction. I don't think we're going to find out that what the others want is the still living Night's Queen in the crypts. But that would make for a fun, different story. You know, if somebody ever wanted to write that one, go right ahead. So I, I will get more into Carol's Koi's question in the next stream. Is there something diplomatic or trade situation or solution that they want? Of Ice and Fire on Twitter or John's Woe? I think that's how you say that. Always tough with Twitter names. If the others were in fact created by Children of Forest, how slash why did they lose control of them? What do you think the Children of Forest imagined their specific purpose or role in the fight against the First Men? That's the, I think we're definitely gonna, I'm going to cover that one next time. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that, Arkeev. I did turn on subscriber only chat a while ago. So, yeah, if you watch these normally and you wonder why your your messages aren't going through, you have to subscribe to the channel to be able to say anything during the streams. Sorry about that. It's something I wanted to turn on. So I did also stopped kind of like drive by weirdness. It, it also makes it makes it harder for bots and stuff like that to chat. Because I actually have to click the subscribe button to do anything. So that's why. That's part of the reason. But we're definitely going to get that one next time. Uh, John's well. I forget what her actual name is. Problem with internet. I don't remember people's real names. Sporter of fanfic. Yeah, people should write fanfic. It's a fun thing to do. A Song of Ice and Fire is in large parts fanfiction, though. Not surprising. As is most literature. <gasps> Shocking. What do I think about the and all involvement in the long night? Oh, God. The timeline question. Were they there for the long night? Or were they there for the Night King? Or both? Or... Which one came first? Who shot first? Was it the White Walkers or the Night King? We've lost a few weirdos. Uh, that's right. Delena. Delena? Delena? That's her name. That is the problem with the internet. There's a lot of people and a lot of names, and I'm not always good with names. We'll definitely get to that one next in the next stream, Archive. There are a lot of people with a lot of opinions about timelines, about what came first and when exactly was the long night and when did the others actually arrive. Hard to say. I think that's the I think the truest answer to that one is I don't know. It's kind of like how do you want to connect the dots? You can kind of make a case for whatever answer you want. How long has this been going on for with the subscriber only chat? Like two months or something like that? I turned it on I turned it on a while ago. King shot first. Yeah, we'll get to that one next time. And then on Twitter, so I, I, I'm not going to try and pronounce this in the original language, but it's basically at Mother of Dragons. Amejatini? I didn't know. That was Pokemon at first. Then I realized it was a different one. How do you think the others will cross the wall? Magical horns, special magical breach like the Black Gate, the White Gate, maybe. Or do you think they don't cross at all? The main battle would happen as the whites pile up like World War Z. John's dream has that second one in it as the idea that they literally climb up the wall. I also, there's also one more here from Wolfman Zach. Don't worry, Zach, we're getting to yours. So how do I think they'll cross the wall? I think the wall has to fall. It has to, it probably has to be destroyed in some part for them to cross. 
because otherwise there's no reason they couldn't. Like you'd have to invent a really convoluted reason why they're essentially holding back at this point when they have the ability to wipe out towns and cities and castles at their whim using not only their winter powers, but also their necromancy. If they could get through the wall, they would. I think that's the the long and short of it. There may be ways that they can sort of get around it, but they I don't think they can physically pass. It's kind of like Blood Raven's cave where there are whites buried outside of it, but not going inside that the uh, there are ways of stopping them, that they cannot get through unless something changes. There's like magical wards or whatever. It's mommy in Portuguese. There we go. That's what I figured. A lot of Portuguese uh, Daenerys fans. I'm not really sure why. Yeah, John's dream has them climbing up like ice spiders. So that is definitely one way they could that they haven't yet. I think, again, just speaks to the idea that they can't yet. How will it come down? Um, I'm not a big believer in the magical horn one. I'm not opposed to the show's version that maybe dragons could do it. There may be something more magical, something that like, well, actually in the show, Bran fucked it up by getting touched by the Night King, which somehow broke the spell. Maybe something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't really know. It seems like George is dropping, though, that if the whites were able to climb up the wall, like if they if the if the others were able to get that close, then they would be able to. So. Uh, that would be my guess. The long night was actually incredibly short. I agree, Luminous Rain. I don't think it was a generation of a long night because like everybody and everything would die. That's like not many things survive like an actual total night for years. They wouldn't survive months. So it's probably a lot, um, lot shorter than in the story. Um, will an undead ice dragon break the wall? Curtis Franks says that that's sort of that is something that I did wonder about when that depiction happened on the show. When it was the dragon that that burst through the wall, there does seem to be something between them. That Silverwing, Alisane's dragon, really creeped out by the wall, in particular the Night Fort, and wanted to go nowhere near them. Since it is magical in nature, like maybe you need something magical to break it. Dragons are magical, so that in like a very like basic sense that you can see how that would work. I wouldn't be upset to see the horn solution that the horn of winter that's probably Sam has if like it was blown in a particular way. But I've talked about this before. You've seen that horn blown. John did it. He blew the horn. Nothing happened. So um <laughs> not opposed the dragons could do it. The idea that ice dragons weird percussive fire could. Yeah, th that whole setup was interesting, I guess is the way to say it. I wasn't a big fan of the white hunt. I mean, I, it, what's the right way to say this? I think the underlying idea is fine. I'm not sure about what we saw on the screen, say the say the say the least. Long night was just winter solstice. I think it was just kind of like the description from Lord of the Rings where they talk about the fell winter, where one was particularly long and particularly harsh. And it killed a bunch of people, but it didn't kill everybody. And it was magical in nature. So that kind of sounds like the other. Although if you look at Norse mythology, they do have the idea of a particularly long wilt winter that will signal the end of the world, which Tolkien may have been drawing on to. Um, so it could go either way, but we know it's happened before. So you, you could not, an entire generation sounds like at least like 10 to 15 years, maybe 20, maybe as many as like a lifetime. So like 70 or 80 years, there's no way humanity would be done. There'd be nobody left. Maybe it was just over a particular territory, but there's stories in the Song of Ice and Fire from the rest of the world where they all experienced the long night. But it was probably widespread and harsh, but relatively short. There were parts of the White Hunt I liked and sequences in it that were pretty good. I don't know. It was. It seemed a little convoluted just to get Dragon on the other side for the Night King to then ride and have it destroy the wall. I think the most... The kindest way to describe it is that it was an inelegant solution that looked. Last question here from Wolfman Zach, aka the Weed Detective. This one on Twitter. What the hell, Zach? So, so he asked, do the others fuck? Do they get nasty? Butt stuff, bondage, etc. All right. So can the others have sex? And if they can have sex, how weird does it get? 
Good question from Wolfman Zach. Can they have sex? Probably not. By the way, very not safe for work discussion coming up. So if you have this on a TV, I'm going to give you like 20 seconds while I hum so that maybe you can mute it in case you have like kids watching or something. So mm-hmm. I decided to do the Jeopardy song. All right. So let's answer this one. Can they have sex? Can they fuck? I think if the others could have sex, they would be. They wouldn't be needing Craster. Of course, that could just mean that they are infertile, that they cannot have children. You can have sex without having children, without impregnating anybody. So it's certainly possible that they do have working ice dongs. So I think it's for sure they probably can't have children having sex. I don't know. I don't remember Sam noting that they had ice sticks when it was melting. I don't remember seeing that. Uh, But presumably since they can make anything they want from ice, I guess they could. And there's weird descriptions from Danny where she thinks about getting screwed by a guy with an ice dick. So it could be metaphorical or it could be literal. Maybe the others do have an ice dick. Uh, And there's stories old Nan said about how the White Walkers would chase maidens through the forest and steal their children and eat them. The implication being that maybe they chase them to do other things to them too, other than just murder. You know, a big R word. I don't know. It We haven't seen them having any particular interest in women so far. So it may be that they are sort of like, like a cyborg sort of thing where they have... Their form has made them beyond sexual urge. You never know. I don't know. Maybe they, maybe they do have ice sticks. I mean, yeah, uh, true curse, Franks. They do look all male. And the Night Queen is the only female. That's that's the only underpinning of that theory I was talking about earlier. Or kind of that fan fiction idea is, if the Night Queen is the only female other, where did she go? We haven't seen her. If she's still alive and away from them, maybe that's why they need baby sacrifices. But then again, she was there with the Night I don't know. It all gets complicated. Uh, if there's a real Night Queen, she's the only female other and she's missing. That could explain why they continually need baby sacrifices. But it could also be that they just have evolved past or their magical creation means it so that they don't need to have children. Like it's kind of like Varamir. I talked about this during the Varamir six skins stream. Like if you could possess one body, could you possess another? How many times could you do it in a row? And then what if you went beyond that and instead of inhabiting a body, found a way to like create your own body. Maybe what the others do. Maybe their ice bodies are kind of like psychic projections or something like that. Oh, that's true, Aaron. Sex happens between men. Good call. I forgot about that. Yeah, they could. I don't know. It's, it's, it's a weird situation. There's no depictions of them having sex. Certainly the Night's Queen was able to have sex with the Night King in Legend, but there's nothing in the current story that tells us that they can. And do they get nasty? I'm sure if they could, they would. They would get real, get real kinky, get real weird because they are very weird things. The Smurfette of the others. Oh my God. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> The one other guilty undertaking, maybe something like the Borg. George is a big nerd, so I wouldn't be surprised if he was drawing on ideas like that. But it's also something that's in the uh, the Glass Flower, his story from the Thousand Worlds, where a character shows up that's a cyborg who used to be human, and one of the things he wants to do is going back to have human experiences. So it could very well be that the White Walkers cannot enjoy sex anymore, but would like to, or something like that. Maybe they miss. Yeah, it could be like a beehive, like um, the queen of sort of thing. I don't know. It's it's fun to think about. I guess we'll have to wait and see if a White Walker whips his icy dick out. Thanks for the question, Zach. What a discussion. You'd need, I think you would need quite a lot of lube to use an ice dick. So, uh, this is like like a maester monthly question make yeah make some ice handcuffs out of it they seem like the sort of guys that would just have a ball but for sure i don't think they can like sexually reproduce if they could there would be literally no reason for crasher and his wives they could just steal human women do it themselves and you know 
they don't have any problems doing horrible crimes to humans so they would just do it they can't or they would i guess saying in, in that way they'd be like witchers the parts work but sterile could be they definitely have not showed any sexual interest anyway so i think we'll do yeah we're gonna come back for a part two next time talk about the creation of the others their relationship to the children and maybe more of like their motivations. And because I think a lot of times when you talk about the White Walkers in Song of Ice and Fire, discussion sort of starts and stops at like the timeline, when they were created, how they were created, and less about like what they want, because they are characters. So they're not mindless golems. They're not just forces of nature or elementals just sort of following a program. They laugh, they can mock, they, they wear clothes, they duel, you know, they have all these normal human parts to them. And those are the parts that get under discussed. So, so I, I want to get into more of that stuff. We'll do that in another stream. I want to thank everybody for all the super chats. I'm just going to check PayPal one more time. Oh, that was it. Remember, if you guys won the giveaway for the free t-shirt for my third list shop, make sure you shoot me a message somewhere and I'll give you a code back. Do it sooner rather than later because there's a sale on right now so you can get more stuff. And yeah, look out for the Dying of the Light episode probably coming out in the next few days. I got to work on that later tonight and over the next few days. <clears throat> Hopefully I haven't used up my voice with two hours of talking straight about the others. Thanks for I don't know if History of Westeros is streaming. I mean, kind of, or not History of Westeros, Radio Westeros. Not really sure. If they are, go check them out. Thanks for coming by, everybody. Slim the like button, share, subscribe, do all the things. And I will see you.